So Sarah and Megan, thank you so much for joining me today. We've done a few programs um, on anti-trafficking over the years, but uh, this one is especially unique uh, in, in large part, uh, Megan, that you'll talk to us in a few minutes that we were able to get additional very um, specific data, data points from transactional activity to add to the typologies and indicators that we've used before. So we want, we want to cover that. And uh, besides the work of your center, uh, thank Capital One and PayPal for, for working on this. It's always so important, as Sarah knows, for the financial sector to continue to step up and, you know, and be active here. So maybe to start, Sarah, I think all of our community hopefully is by now well aware of Polaris and the great work you folks do. But why don't you talk to us a little bit about that and, and your role at the organization? Sure, thanks, John. Um, so I work at Polaris, a nonprofit focused on ending sex and labor trafficking. Um, we mostly focus on the United States um, and our largest program is that we operate the US National Human Trafficking Hotline. So have a lot of insights into kind of what's going on in the ground through the, that information that we receive and those calls we get from victims and survivors reaching out for support. Um, my role is really to focus on partnering with the financial services uh, industry, um, kind of leverage the amazing uh, position and expertise really that the industry has in terms of um, addressing human trafficking kind of from this financial crimes angle. And so um, we created the uh, financial intelligence unit in partnership with PayPal, which is a team I lead. Um, and we do a lot of in-house research and intelligence work, but also try and fill, facilitate um, a lot of com conversations, dialogue and collaboration across the industry, but also just really bringing in the experts that know the topic best. And so I would say this is you know, a great example of, of a collaboration like that. Thanks, Sarah. And, and Megan, uh, the, the Avery Center, which you co-founded, uh, obviously instrumental in this particular project. Uh, talk to us a bit about that and how you first got connected with Polaris. Sure, thanks, John. Um, so yeah, I'm Megan Lundstrom. I am a, one of the co-founders and currently uh, the director of research at the Avery Center. Um, I founded the Avery Center back in 2014. Um, we were originally free hour girls and went through a name change in the middle of the pandemic um, because, you know, the pandemic was not stressful enough. We should uh, go through a legal name change at the same time. Um, but really that goal was to just communicate that we serve all ages and all genders who've experienced commercial sexual exploitation and sex trafficking. Um, and so the Avery Center has two arms to the organization. We have a direct service arm um, with a wide menu of services that um, also thanks to the pandemic are available virtually. So we're seeing a rapid increase in access to those services over the past um, year, which is exciting and, um, and, and troubling at the same time. Um, the other arm that we have is the research arm. And that's what I oversee. And um, the Avery Center's, our, our vision statement is lived experience must inform change. And so all of our programs are informed um, first and foremost by those of us, including myself, who hold lived experience with these um, crimes and human rights violations. Um, but also, um, I think it's really important, um, as you and John and Sarah have both touched on, that 
Um, we can't fight this issue without collaboration. And so our research has shown us that, survivors have said that, um, and so we're really passionate about these collaborative efforts. One of the things that, um, we'll talk about your report in a second, but one of the things that the report emphasizes, is, as you say, is collaboration, but also context, right? Um, you, you folks know much better than I, um, sort of the, um, not in the commonology is the wrong word, but the misunderstanding that the public has regarding trafficking. And I think that's been part of, I know, Polaris's mission to clear that up, uh, you know, to separately work on projects to help survivors get uh, financial access, to get bank accounts, all those sorts of things. Because, you know, people make, unfortunately, snap judgments regarding these sorts of things. What other, um, what other research, Megan, before we go into this report, have you folks done previously? You've been around, you say, since 2014. What other research that could be useful to the, um, the financial private sector in terms of being more vigilant uh, regarding looking for trafficking patterns? Sure. Um, so I think our first huge research project started back in 2017. Um, and we started actually doing qualitative interviews with um, both current victims and successfully exited survivors. Um, and so to date, um, the Avery Center has done over 70 qualitative interviews with victims and survivors, um, primarily of sex trafficking with a little bit of overlap into labor trafficking. Um, and so that data set is, I mean, it's just enormous. There, it's just such a wealth of wisdom and knowledge and insight. Um, and so we have many projects that have come out since then, um, including um, federal funding for a housing program um, mm -hmm. that addresses some of the housing gaps that survivors experience. Um, but I mean, literally projects are coming out every couple months still from, from all of that research. So that's been really exciting. Um, where my research has been centered over the last probably year is really digging into social media. Okay. and understanding um, how both traffickers and victims utilize social media um, and what those overlaps are specifically um, with, with financial transactions, what that looks like, how communications happen, um, language, emojis, what platforms, um, what companies are being utilized and taken advantage of by traffickers. Um, so that's been really exciting to learn about, and I feel like I've, I've just hit the tip of the iceberg with what's possible there. So on this particular report, um, you've reached out, or you, you tell me how it worked, but PayPal and uh, Capital One have been able to go through uh, previous uh, financial transactions that you had uh, when you were being victimized and you, you gave them that access. How did that start? So you've been doing these qualitative research interviews, so it made sense. So you talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, you're getting data there. Then did you decide, I have my own experiences, and if I could give them even additional information, then we can be even more specific on what to look for? So how, how did it start that you were able to reach out to those partners and, and talk to them about, let's, let's figure out from my experiences how we can help the broader community? Oh, man. Um, I think, so as the saying goes, uh, research is usually me-search. 
Um, and, and I think that's absolutely been a driver behind my own interest in wanting to do research is to understand my own experiences. Why did this happen? How did this happen? How do we stop it from happening in the future? Um, and so that's been a piece of my healing is just literally understanding what happened to me. Um, and it has been part of, uh, my personal journey to empowerment of being able to pass that knowledge on to others. Um, so there's this personal component of understanding what happened to me so that I can heal. Um, but being able to educate and inform and see systems change is really ultimately what brings about the most empowerment and just these feelings of, of knowing like something, something good is coming out of everything that I have overcome. Sure. Um, and other people are not going to experience the same things because we're closing gaps. We're identifying patterns. Um, so that's initially how things started. I think one of the things that absolutely makes my experiences unique and john you touched on this was um it's it's difficult uh for survivors to have any records um, of what has happened to them and um, one of the things that makes my experiences unique is i have all of my medical records and i had all of these bank statements um, so i had a lot of actual concrete evidence if you will of my exploitation um, and so I realized this several years ago with my bank records and thought, I'm just going to save these. I'd love to do some type of a project and look at them sometime, but I kind of just put them in a folder and basically forgot about it. It got kind of shelved, you know, um, and Sarah and I were actually at an event together and um, with other financial partners. So kind of these conversations around um, money laundering investigations and how traffickers are abusing systems. Um, so that, that topic was up. And so she and I just had sat down and had a really brief, like, I, I just mentioned like, Hey, I'd love to do this. This is what I have, but I just, I don't have the resources and I don't even know like who needs this information or if it would even be helpful. Right. Um, and so from there, like Sarah really, really like, uh, listened, um, to me as a survivor and, um, reached out and I don't, Sarah, do you want to kind of pitch in on next steps? Cause I don't even know what happened. <laughs> hey, Sarah, when you do that, I'm really interested because you have such good connections with PayPal and Capital One and, and a bunch of our peers. So how, how challenging was it when you reached out after you, you met with Megan to say, Hey, what do you folks think about doing this? Cause you know, obviously those of us in the AML community, we're, conservative in one way in which we worry about laws and regulations. Oh, geez, I don't know if we can do this even with permission. So how, did, how did that work? And then to Megan's point, how did she hand off that issue to you so you could facilitate this project's getting started? Yeah, I mean, I think I probably had the easiest job in this project because there's a tremendous amount of interest and enthusiasm from um, all of our friends throughout the industry to work on this. Um, you know, there was definitely a question around, uh, you know, could the financial institution that uh, was involved uh, be involved in the project? Could they, because that would be a whole nother lens of uh, insight that they would have, you know, kind of consulting with some different people. We decided, you know, to be conservative, it's probably for the best just to um, not include the bank that uh, was actually the financial institution involved in the situation. Um, and so that made it, I think, a little bit easier um, that we were able to focus on PayPal and Capital One, where, um, you know, they, they didn't necessarily have to worry about that kind of um, any touch points or, or any implications of that. 
Um, and really just reached out to some people that I know are very um, involved in this day to day. They're in the weeds. They see these patterns, are, are constantly trying to figure out these patterns um, and thought, you know, let's bring them on board because I might see things, but they're going to have a whole different lens on, on what they see. And that, that definitely played out. You know, I think there were some things that there was so many pieces of it that, you know, uh, Megan really shed light on things that the rest of us weren't thinking about. And then there were pieces where to me, having worked in the anti-trafficking field for 10 years, it was like, duh, of course that happens. And, and, uh, our, the AML colleagues were like, wait, what? <laughs> That's the thing? Um, so it was definitely a learning experience, I think, uh, for all kind of three groups, uh, the financial institutions, um, uh, myself and my team, and then also for Megan to, to kind of bring all these different vantage points and perspectives together. So Megan, there's five themes in the report, right? I've pulled up the report here, and, and some of them, as, as Sarah mentioned, sort of confirmed what was known before. So let's walk through the themes and if you can give us uh, some color on some of these things. Obviously some dealt with third parties. Uh, I'm looking very quickly. So, um, some of the profits indicated were a lot higher than the, than the bank statements were reflecting. Give us a sense of the themes that you were able to find with working with Sarah, Capital One and PayPal in terms of your own experiences. Sure. Um... Yeah, I, there's so much. And I know that we don't have all day to talk about things. Right. And I also want people to go read the report. So Absolutely. Um, I, I can give some like, uh, from a personal lens, what the big takeaways were for me. Um, I think the first one was I framed it um, looking at the different types of third party traffickers that I'd had. Um, and I was I was personally really curious to know you know, the, the different types of traffickers that I had had very different practices and rules um, and, and operations. And so I was curious if that was visible on the bank statements. Um, and it absolutely was uh, like in looking through them in chronological order, you could see where shift from one third party trafficker to the next happened. Um, it was it was very visual, but again, it's visual because I have that lived experience context behind it. So um, somebody that's maybe investigating and they they're looking at just the numbers on the screen, they may not pick up on the significance in the shift of transactions and like why that happened, what was happening, um, and even what to look for in those two. So we kind of when we use the term trafficking, we kind of assume that like all trafficking looks the same. Um, and therefore, we should just be looking for this kind of, you know, one recipe of um, indicators. And, and that's not necessarily true. And, and I'm guilty of this, too. I think this is just how our human brains work. Um, and so looking at how those, again, that context of those different third party traffickers differed and why, um, that was really important to me. And I thought it was um, a pretty, pretty neat finding. Um, understanding how essentially like debt bondage happened um, because being in the moment and remembering feeling like I was scrambling, I was treading water. I just could not make ends meet and I couldn't figure out why. And, you know, it, it felt like it was always two steps forward, one step back. Um, and so being removed from the trauma and being able to actually look at the transactions and see that my traffickers were intentionally creating an environment where that happened ongoing. Um, so that was very validating of those feelings and that memory of just 
chaos and, and, and seeing like, oh my goodness, they actually created this. They created this um, system of giving me just enough money or ensuring that I was potentially at risk of overdrafting constantly. Um, so I think that one was, was also a very interesting one to see how that's structured. Um, Sarah, what else? I know, like I said, there's, there was so many big takeaways, but I think those were like two that, that really had some like personal implications for my healing. Yeah. And Sarah, isn't the last one that Megan mentioned, that's sort of what you, we, we heard historically about those that are trafficked in, uh, or labor trafficked in nail salons and massage parlors, like withholding the funds. So they obviously couldn't get anywhere. So that must have been one where you heard, well, that makes sense. And that's certainly one that we've, we've heard before. But talk about that. And then there's a geographic disparity, too, in the report that's mentioned. Right. So, um, you know, there uh, definitely a, a huge thing that <laughs> you notice when looking at these records is um, extremely low account balances um, each month, you know, maybe $12,000 would have been in and out of the account in a month. And then the account would, would end up, you know, with maybe $200 left in it. Um, and so there were a lot of overdraft fees. Um, and then, you know, kind of money being dispensed, um, just enough to cover, you know, a couple upcoming expenses. So there were a few times where, you know, maybe $300 would be deposited and then, you know, there would be like three or four expenses that basically amounted to exactly $300 or, or $2 below. So really just um, such a level of control in terms of, um, of finances and, and really having access to anything extra that, that could maybe help someone leave the situation. Um, I think for me, you know, one of the things and this is really where it was a good reminder of why we have to bring different stakeholders together was on the geographic trends piece. Um, you know, one, I think we, as Megan referenced, have to acknowledge that sex trafficking can look very different in different parts of the country. Right. So for instance, you know, a lot of Megan's experience occurred in Las Vegas. Um, the way commercial sex tends to happen in Las Vegas that we learned from Megan is is it tends to be the buyers, the Johns that rent hotel rooms. So Megan didn't have a lot of hotel transactions in Las Vegas. Um, but at a different point in time, you know, when she was in Colorado, she had a lot of Colorado hotel expenses, often, you know, within a few miles of her own home. Who has that many hotel charges right. in the town that they live in? Um, mm -hmm. So things like that were standing out. And then I think also, you know, Megan kind of had this experience at a very unusual time where there was a huge oil boom in the Bakken region of, uh, I guess, Western Dakotas. And that meant a huge influx of men, uh, primarily single men or men without their families to the region to work in, on these uh, oil fields. Very little infrastructure, like hardly any law enforcement presence for a while. Um, and I had actually been kind of overseeing case response from that region from the hotline during that time. And it was, I mean, Megan will describe it this way too. It was like the wild west yeah. and traffickers totally knew it and took advantage of it. Um, and so kind of looking at those transactions, the second I saw transactions in, uh, in the Dakotas in especially uh, uh, North Dakota, like Williston area, I was like, oh, I know exactly what's happening there. And that's where, you know, why would 
someone at a bank necessarily know that level of nuance. That's where we really have to be continuing to talk and share what are those trends, what are we seeing, because something I might take for granted isn't going to be um, common sense or it's not going to be known to an industry that has to be monitoring for all of these different types of financial um, uh, crime and like all of these different types of behaviors. Well, to Megan's point, we do want people to read the report and there's some excellent things in there. Uh, I think we've, we've touched the surface. Let me end on, on these couple of uh, quick questions. Megan, start with you. Obviously, um, you know, your, your, your life is, has changed dramatically and you're giving back considerably. What, um, advice is the wrong word, but uh, what would you say to, you know, current victims? I know Polaris, I mean, they're set, they're set up like the Avery Center is to help. So we know that that, that exists. Uh, but what would be your, um, I don't know, re recommendations to, to those that uh, may have unfortunately been in the same situation you're in to know that there, there is, there is some, some hope. Uh, again, hard for some of us to articulate, but what, what, would, you, what would you tell folks? And what do you tell folks when you do panel discussions and, and you, you go through your, your life's challenges? Yeah, I think, again, pulling on my own lived experience, that feeling of not being seen. Um, so going to places of business and feeling like, you know, in hindsight, I had all of these indicators. You can go to any human trafficking 101 and I'm like, you know, I had eight of these and I went to this restaurant or I went to this institution or I went to this medical facility and not feeling seen. Um, and how invisible you feel oftentimes as a trafficking victim. However, we're in, we're in plain sight. We're interacting with, with people. We're not oftentimes just hidden away. Um, and so I think kind of that first step um, as, as somebody who is contemplating leaving or has just recently left and is navigating that healing journey, I think it's so important to just feel seen um, and know that there's people out there who are allies, fantastic allies like you guys in this field. And there's survivors um, who are being empowered um, by folks like you to lead and inform this work. Um, and, and oftentimes, like, I think survivors have so many, so much potential opportunity to contribute in this space, whether they want to actually be seen and be publicly identified, or if they'd like to just contribute their experiences behind the scenes um, in things like a, a research project that's larger than just my bank statements. I think it's possible um, to do something like this where survivors can contribute their experiences um, and inform this field to, to stop these things, stop traffickers from taking advantage of systems. Um, so, so yeah, I just always want to honor people where they're at and, and hope that they, they feel seen and heard and acknowledged and, and that their experiences um, are legitimate um, and, and they're believed and um, that, that we're working to fix things. Um, you know, so, yeah, so simple, but so compelling. Be seen. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's great advice. Uh, Sarah, on, on, a, on an up, somewhat of an upbeat note, I think, you know uh, that recently the Treasury Department through FinCEN announced their national priorities and human tra anti-human trafficking is a priority. And I think that's, uh, that's in large part due to the great work that Polaris has done and your your work with the financial sector and other sectors to get that in front of 
both law enforcement and the regulators that that should be um, you know a national and international priority so obviously just released in the past week the list of priorities but I noticed obviously that was one and I think that only means more hopefully resources dedication to learning information outreach all the things that I know that Polaris has worked really hard at so uh, that has to make you feel just a little bit better, or at least that you have a little more support than perhaps you did a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, I think that's huge. Um, and it's a testament, I think, to the whole industry really stepping up and saying, you know, this is an area where we could really do something. So we have mm -hmm. the, the skill set and the information to do something. Let's, let's focus our energies here. And it also makes me kind of reflect on what, you know, Megan was just saying about feeling invisible of, you know, trafficking victims who may be currently in a situation, you know, it, 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 they, many of them have, are probably not keeping, keeping up with the FinCEN priorities. Right. Like, uh, <laughs> there is this feeling of there's this whole industry, this huge, powerful industry, literally the financial services industry that is naming this as a priority and um, working to see those people. Um, and that's um, a really powerful thing. I so agree. Um... Megan, thanks for sharing your, your story uh, and being part of this report. Sarah, as always, thanks for the great work uh, that Polaris is doing. Uh, information will be available, is available on the Polaris and the Avery Center websites. We will put those links out. Um, I also wrote a short little blog a couple weeks ago about this. And uh, again, talking about the importance of adding as many indicators as we can find so that we can be di diligent and we can uh, you know, make a, hopefully make a difference. Uh, and I, I just think we end on Megan's point. We want people to be seen. So folks, thanks so much for sharing your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, John.